0: Hi, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. I'm your host, Amy Stansberry, and today we're going to be continuing with our mini series on housing affordability in Austin by taking a bit of a step back in time and looking specifically at the history of housing discrimination in Austin. So why are we doing this? Uh, Two big reasons. First, the physical built infrastructure of a city, which is like the roads, the bridges and the houses, they take a really long time to change, which means that once something is built, it's likely to be there for a while. Which also means that city housing plans and development programs from even over a hundred years ago still have a very real and visible impact on the way the city looks today. Plus, the accumulation of wealth from housing and land use and land is very much generational. A 2021 report from the National Association of Realtors found that the home ownership rate for white Texans is 67% compared to 40% for black Texans. To further highlight these inequities, I'm going to read a short excerpt from a recent article in Fast Company magazine entitled, America's Racial Wealth Gap is Enormous and Getting Worse. Okay, here's about two paragraphs from that article. Black Americans still have the most debt, says Teresa Ghilarducci, professor of economics and policy analysis at the New School for Social Research in New York City and a nationally recognized expert on retirement. They're more exposed to financial fraud. They pay more for their debt, even if they have equivalent credit scores. She says black Americans live in neighborhoods where homes don't appreciate, are more likely to take on student debt and will more likely have to work in college. So they're less likely to finish their degrees. That leaves them with student debt, but without a degree." End quote. And then finally, the last little data point I want to share on this is the racial wealth gap. The latest data from the Federal Reserve shows that a typical median white family owns about 184000 in family wealth. A typical black family owns 23000 And a typical Hispanic family owns 38000 And it goes on to say the median wealth gap between black and white families of $0.12 cents per $1 of white wealth is largely unchanged over the past 30 years. And just to be clear here, when we're talking about family wealth, that's what a family owns minus what they owe. And there's this blog post on the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis's webpage where they start to point out and look at the causes of these inequities. They say stark inequities are evident in various facets of black and Hispanic families' wealth and white family wealth, and they point to historical barriers that continue to hamper black and Hispanic wealth accumulation. Examples of historical barriers include Black Americans' exclusion from building wealth via the Homestead Act, the Social Security Act of 1935, and the GI Bill of 1944, redlining and the discrimination in the criminal justice system. End of the article. And so this is exactly why we're looking at the history of Austin's housing policies today, because these very policies are still impacting the affordability of our city right now, especially for Austin's Black population. And then the second reason we're going to be talking about the history of housing policies in Austin is because it's rife with outright discriminatory and harmful practices that, unsurprisingly, continue to engender a lot of mistrust towards the city and its big affordability plans today, which in a few more episodes, we're going to get into what's happening right now. But before we do that, I want you to understand why current debates of land use policy and development are some of the most contentious debates to happen at City Hall. And really, it all connects back to this history. Okay, so let's get to that. To kick us off, we're going to be listening in on a conversation I recorded with Dr. Kevin Foster, who's the acting chair of the Black Studies Department at the University of Texas at Austin. He's also the author of a really informative report that I found super useful in researching this series. It's called Destruction of Black Communities in the Name of Progress, The Case of Austin, 1865 to 1928. In the interview you're about to hear, he's going to walk us through that entire report. Okay, let's give it a listen. Okay, so I'm here um, with Dr. Foster, and we're going to be talking about um, this report, Destruction of Black Communities in the Name of Progress. And really, you know, what resonated with me about this was kind of taking us back to some of our earlier days in the history of Austin and um, really showing how a lot of these things are still impacting us today. And so I wanted to maybe start with this framework that you you kind of introduced at the beginning of the piece that I think is very helpful in describing Austin politics today as well, which is this uh, interest convergence theory. Can, can you describe what, what that is?
1: Sure, so um, the idea of interest convergence was um, earliest articulated by Derek Bell, who was a, a critical race scholar and an attorney really brilliant uh, legal mind. And in doing his work, um, what he began to notice was that all the moments of sort of landmark social and legal progress when it came to marginalized groups in this country, those moments never came as just wholesale victories sort of on one side of a scale, but rather that for us to make progress for a marginalized group, it usually came with some benefit to the group that was already in power as well. And so in other words, what he was basically saying was that profound positive social change only came with the sort of permission of the powers that be, um, and that the terms of the permission would basically be that they somehow benefited as well.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and one of the things that I thought was um, pretty resonant, especially here in Austin, as part of that was that um, a lot of times, you know, also mentioned in there is that um, when it comes to the empowered group, harming marginalized groups, there was decisions, designs, and practices, the intent to harm need not be present for the harm to occur. And you kind of point that out. And I think that you see that in Austin still today, but can you talk a little bit about this? This idea that, you know, a lot of time or the policies don't necessarily, on its face, have to be written to be intentionally racist or intentionally harming, but oftentimes that's the impact anyway.
1: Right. So I'm trying to think of like some 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 really nice um, examples of, of it of it playing out. So let's say that a community has been asking for sidewalks for literally decades or basic infrastructure improvements for decades and decades and decades, and they never come and never come and never come. And then one day they come. Well, some folks would say, look at what was done for this community. But then others would say, "Hmm." so the sidewalks suddenly arrived, did they? Well, what else might be going on uh, that, that 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 seems to occur right when the sidewalks come in and what they then find is that wow we were amidst a wave of gentrification and a wave of displacement of the historically rooted community so in the case of east austin the black community or in the case of sections of austin brown community or black and brown communities so the interest convergence said, oh, these folks who have been asking for sidewalks for all this time but didn't have the political power to get it done, all of a sudden it comes, but it's really actually not even about them. That thing that is coming, that new benefit is actually accruing because another group is now present. So there's Mm -hmm. one kind of um, example of it sort of playing out. And there's many, you know, there's many more where you see a benefit coming. And actually some of the sort of older community members will raise their eyebrows because and with suspicion and other folks will say, how, how could you be suspicious? This is just such a wonderful, good thing. And they would say, right. And the fact that this thing just showed up makes me wonder what else is going on. And typically they're right that there's something else going on.
0: Right, you see this play out even in, in debates today when the city's thinking about adding a bike lane or doing some kind of new park master plan or something like that. Um, you see these conversations happening at City Hall today.
1: Absolutely, and then what you know, like the sort of good liberals would say is, why are you upset? At least it's come here. What, what's the big deal? It's come here now. And there's a sort of fundamental, almost unintended disrespect where, well, what we wanted was our taxes to be fairly and equitably spent and the infrastructure to be built out in an equitable way because it's the right thing to do. We didn't want it suddenly built out because you've arrived, which lets us know it's not about us. So mm-hmm. the only way we are to gain just access and equitable resources is if you're there to get them. Well, that's kind of insulting. Um, And so the, the conversation gets pushed forward in these different levels where it starts with like the fundamental denial of what is just and right, then bringing what is just and right, but really bringing it in on terms that are not quite as presented. It's not really about this group of people. And then in the next stage, like the good people who are bringing these resources, clutching their pearls and being upset, that they're not met with gratitude by the historically marginalized community.
0: Mm -hmm. And so in this report, you talk about um, some of the different ways that these principles and you see this happen over and over again, especially, you know, focusing on on our history. Um, And you start back in 1865 with Juneteenth and um, emancipation. And um, this is kind of the Leading into the formation of, I guess, free Black communities in Austin, and so can you talk a little bit about this? I think you had on here that um, at this time, oh yes, before the Civil War, Austin was already around thirty percent Black, and then immediately following the Civil War, the Black population grew to at least thirty-six percent. So we had a very large Black population here in Austin that, once uh, after Juneteenth, started forming their own communities. Really,
1: right? So. One of the things that's... So there's really some interesting uh, social and historical dynamics at play, which is that Texas is a pretty rough place. It's pretty lawless in in many respects. It's this sweeping, expansive space. There's lots of sort of semi-disenfranchised or hurting folks. So, you know, Confederate veterans... Or other folks who feel kind of sort of left out of society and not really making a way and coming together and basically bands of people doing bad things and terrorizing the landscape. It was just not um, a place where there's just, you know, law enforcement here to protect and serve in places. And, and so when you, when you look at like old Westerns and you know, the sheriff arrives and, you know, who's going to like save the town? That stuff doesn't come from nowhere. That stuff is a historically rooted reality where towns had to figure out how to fend for themselves and and families with homesteads had to figure out how to fend for themselves. Well, coming out of the Civil War, Black folk, were that's the position they were in. How are they gonna fend for themselves in a context that was just not ready to provide them protections? So immediately following the Civil War, there's a lot of um, human movement Black Black folk moving here and there, lots of Black folk or or relatively speaking, a good number of Black folk come to Travis County. A good number of folks already in Travis County come into Austin and basically the Black population in Austin is topped off or grows with um, folks coming in looking for work, looking for opportunity, but also looking for safety. In this context, this little town of Austin, what black folk would do was they would basically come together in mutual support and start little communities. So these came to be known as freedmen towns, and they would typically have a little church. They would typically have um, uh, uh, so either either systems of barter or uh, like a grocery store kind of kind of like nascent setup. Uh, in some cases, there was even a black newspaper in one of these um, early freedmen towns um, in Wheatville. So these these black communities would come together and they'd come in, onto land that was close enough into the, the population of the city so that they could come in for work. So maybe you're a cobbler, maybe you're a chef, maybe you're a domestic, you know, you're you're somehow working. For folks gaining an income and then retreating back to your uh, safer community, and the idea was kind of a lot—not really be on the grid, not really be noticed. Just have your own group for mutual support. And so these towns would have a couple hundred people. They would have, in some cases, over a thousand folks. These little freedmen um, communities, and there was over a well over a dozen of them. um, You know, by the late 1800s, so Kensenville wheatville so you know people know oh there's the wheatville co-op oh there you see this name wheatville yeah there was a dude whose last name was wheat and he was a, you know an emancipated um african-american man who basically started this little town um robertson hill which carries that name today if you go over to um you cross over 35 on 11th street that area was robertson hill Um, one of the really important ones and the longest lasting ones was Clarksville. Um, That would be like, where, where would you place that short of Mopac or or west of Mopac um, ninth street, eighth street, seventh, like up, up in those areas, you can, to this day you go and the, the roads are really windy and, and they dip and they rise. That's because this was a Black area, Black community that the city refused to provide infrastructural improvements for going into the 70s. And so whereas all about town, you see kind of flattened roads, you'll see a grid system, you'll see this, the city just didn't do that. And one of the ways from sort of an urban geographic historical perspective, you can recognize spaces by the level of improvements or not, or, or not, right? So East Austin has pockets. If you go deep East Austin, and now the gentrification is on ev- everywhere, but if you go deep East Austin, like past Springdale, um, east, of, uh, east of, I was saying westerly, I meant east of Mopac, east mm-hmm. of Springdale, you'll see, you'll go to an area where the roads dip and turn and curve. And you know, that was an area that the city was not, providing robust infrastructural support.
0: Yeah, and you you talk about here in Clarksville, um, some of the changing you already see, you said is, um, you named it as kind of one of Austin's first gentrification efforts beginning in Clarksville, because a lot of these, like you mentioned, the infrastructure doesn't seem to improve in Clarksville until it's basically majority white population that's living there.
1: Right, so yeah, so yeah, the one of the things that I that I would I would point out, and I'm sure I'm not original in this sentiment, but I'd point out that right gentrification. Our earliest gentrification is in the eighteen hundred is in the late eighteen hundreds, when the city expands, all these freedmen communities. Remember, they're like on the edges of the established town. They are also in areas that are like a little less um, desired. Maybe they're in kind of a flood zone. Um, you know, maybe there's something going on with the land there. Uh, but then as a city expands, those lands become desirable. And so we actively sometimes seek to displace the people already living there. In this case, the black folk already living there and the encroachment begins and then the, the, the displacement. And then after the displacement, the improvement.
0: Mm-hmm. and so you have these you know you're, you're talking about these freedmen communities um and a lot of them are located like you just mentioned all over the city of austin but then in 1928 you have our city plan that comes out that really uh tries to seg- further segregate and push all these communities to just be in east austin and, and this is something that you know i think at this point, many Austinites maybe have heard of in passing, it's, you know, becoming more people are talking about it, but explain it, what it actually is. What is the city plan? How does it start to move these communities?
1: Right. So, so 1865, you have a solid black population, roughly, roughly, roughly a third of the population, right? Then right then 1865, we have our first policy moves to kind of marginalize and control those black populations that are coming in. So our first vagrancy law that I can see anyway is passed where we say, okay, if um, it, our, base, our, our first anti-homeless laws, we'll say, mm-hmm. if I see a black person and they can't tell me where they're going, if they're quote unquote idling about, if they're not active, then basically we can arrest them. We can find them and we can, in in so many words, subject them to indenture and we can sort of bid them out to the lowest bidder who can put them to work to quote quote, unquote pay off their debt. So it's a it's a neo-slavery. It's an indentured servitude. Other people want to say, no, it's just a matter of controlling criminals or whatever. Um, I see it pretty clearly as um, the criminalization of just people who want to work and live and survive and who are being shut out. Um, So, you know, right on, early on, we start marginalizing the people. But then when it comes to these communities that black folk um, build, what we start to do is sort of policy them out of existence. So we'll say, okay, you know what? I think we should place the city dump there. Place the city dump right in the midst of a black community make the place increasingly uninhabitable, unsanitary. Black folk will say, you know what? Th- this is kind of gross. Let's find another place. And there's already a big East population. Let- let's move East. Maybe the city po- uh, uh, passes ordinances around um, cooping up your hens. Uh, maybe they pass ordinances around like what a structure should look like. You know, your your hogs have to be, you know, penned, that sort of thing. And people don't have time for that. They don't have money for that. Their hogs are just fine wandering. Their chickens know how to get home to roost, you know. So these these impositions that seem like, oh, they're just, you know, there for the common good. mm, What they're doing is they're making impositions on communities that make their departure from that community more likely.
0: Right. They're not explicit, but in effect, they're doing, it seems like the writers know exactly what the intent there is.
1: Seems like it, seems mm-hmm. like it. And it certainly has that intent, or mm-hmm. excuse me, it certainly has that impact. So over right. time, what ends up happening is more Black folk start leaving these townships, these little freedmen communities and settling in the East and the East becomes larger. It becomes the biggest critical mass of Black folk. So this process has already started. Mm-hmm. 1928 is not the beginning, but my, 1928 is sort of the, the nail in the coffin that makes it official. In 1928, a city plan um, that has been commissioned by the sort of city leaders comes out and they ratify it. And it basically says, here is the way we're gonna develop the city of Austin. We are going to take this, this area and build out this road. We're gonna turn this into a park. We're gonna do this, we're gonna do that. And you know, so they'll say things like, well, this area right here is just inhabited by a whole bunch of unsightly Negro shacks. So what we're going to do is we're going to displace those people, make the land much more valuable, and um, move those people east. So when you read the city plan, you will actually see references to um, Black communities. And they'll say, there's unsightly Negro shacks over here. We can make much better use of the land. And so what we need to do is basically displace those Negroes and move them over to the east. And then we can take this land and develop it in a a more beautiful and a wholesome way. So the city planners are saying, how can we make the most beautiful city possible? But their vision of the most beautiful city possible has black folk pushed to the side. And then what they say is, oh, and by the way, We will make the east side beautiful, we promise. We're going to put amenities there. We're going to put parks there. It's also going to save us money because rather than having a a pool here with like the black section and the white section or maybe a black pool and a white pool, we're actually going to take those and um, now just have a black pool on that side of town, a white pool on that side of town. So as they do this, what ends up happening is the, the promise is never delivered upon right so and this is again this element of interest convergence theory if you just read the document what you'll see is oh we promise parks amenities improvements for black folk this is this is going to be great for black folk and of course it's 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 not great for black folk this is something to the benefit of the existing power structure the existing white power structure that's who it's for but then they promise this benefit over here so This offers, by the way, policy lessons moving forward. Like what I was saying, like when someone will say, oh, we've got this great thing, we promise it's gonna be good for you. What older seasoned folks with a sense of history would do is raise their eyebrows and say, oh, you come bearing gifts, do you? Let me take a look at what comes with these supposed gifts. Interest convergence theory says, beware those gifts, because to the extent that you're be benefiting, somebody else is benefiting more, and this is not about you. So if you're gonna vote for or against a city bond, if you're going to vote for or against something with sidewalks, if you're gonna vote for or against something with our homeless population, for or against something with our taxes, in every case, When things are supposed to be for a marginalized community, that marginalized community would do well and everyone else to go, hmm, let me take a second look. And often you say, okay, well, if you really want to do it, this is what it would look like. You're going to have to tweak it this way, this way, and this way to offer these protections because we see the bigger picture. We see what you're actually going for. And that thing that you're actually going for could totally undermine all of these other supposed Benefits.
0: Right. And you see this, you know, you don't have it in this, you don't mention it in this report because we're looking back earlier, but you see this, like you mentioned, happen over and over again. You know, it makes me think of the urban renewal, urban removal time, also in the like 50s, 60s, 70s, where it was these are, you know, quote unquote, blighted properties that we're just trying to fix and make better and people will be paid to move to new nicer neighborhoods. (laughs) And obviously that didn't happen either. You know, you just you keep seeing this isn't something that only was happening in the 20s. Like we, we see this happen again, kind of in every different development scheme we have as a city.
1: Beautiful example. We are going to help you by removing you and placing you somewhere better well the somewhere better probably doesn't have the same economic trajectory in terms of what's going to happen to the property values whereas the place you're being displaced from is going to be heck of valuable this this place you're being displaced from is going to be so valuable and so you know if you look in austin if you look on i35 between let's say uh, 6th and 11th on the highway. There's a Robertson Hill apartment complex. There's a Tyndall. And then right in between that, there's an old house on the hill.
0: Yes, I've seen that. And I've always wondered about that house.
1: Right. So, you know, the developers are confounded because the, the these folks, uh, Mexican American, they were like, no, we're not selling this thing, but we're gonna give you this much money, but it's gonna be so great for you, we promise. And they're like, okay, well, we've seen your promises before. And the promises get bigger and bigger and bigger, and maybe the cash out gets bigger and bigger. But why is somebody wanting to take your property? Why is somebody wanting to quote unquote invest? Because they're gonna get even more. You never buy something Simply because it's going to have less value, you buy something because it's going to have more value. So like the wise bet is often to resist the temptation to cash out. But that's a, a really difficult call if this is going to be life-changing for you or it's going to be a moderate improvement for you. If you're in desperate enough straits, or if the money looks good enough, you might cash out, but you're cashing out in a sense for 10 cents on the dollar, right? You're cashing out, you're taking that penny and you're going to get a dime. They're taking that penny, they're going to get a hundred bucks. And you're never going to be able to recapture that land. You'll never get it back. So, you know, not that this is a seminar on holding on to your land or land investment, but when it comes to these urban centers, when people come calling you and I get the text messages, Mm
2: -hmm. Hey, is
1: this your property? You know, I'll sell, I'll buy for cash. I tell them to, you know, take a hike, you know, anytime they come wanting to buy my land, all that tells me is I have something I need to hold on to. And Mm -hmm. now, you know, we're actually having a conversation 20 years too late because most people have lost that land.
0: You you talk about this at the end of your report, but I want to bring it up again here. It's, um, you know, what does this mean for us now going forward? Um, you know, you wrote that, um, you know, it's kind of been our modus operandi since the Civil War has been to serve the most empowered first and then to serve the remaining population to the extent possible. And I think the question now on on a lot of people's minds is, you know, how do we break free from that? And you kind of posed that at the end of this report, too, is, You know, we do have the situation in Austin, especially when we talk about housing, we've seen it recently. Every city council that comes in does seem to have a new big, big plan for what they're going to do for our city to fix these things. Obviously, well, I don't know if it's obvious that we should do something. I I don't know. It's like, it's like, how do we break out of this mold where, where we're just stuck, like doing something that gets this negative return, you know,
1: we are, we are invisibly rooted or we are we are we are rooted to a system that is invisibly invested in the acceleration of inequity Mm. the way capital works the way the game works is that as you get you continue to consume and the goal is to get more and more and more at some point the scales are tilted and you're playing a game where if you are on the lighter side of the scale you have less you are at a systematic disadvantage always and those with more are at a systematic advantage always so our system Without correction, and you know the libertarians and the late the Ayn Rand followers and the laissez-faire people would just say, "I'm nuts for this." What I'm saying is that that kind of approach leads to accelerated inequity. When when you, whenever you have those with the most get to make the rules, get to do the things the way they think is best. What that means is the extermination or elimination or impoverishment of those those with less. That's just what's gonna happen. They would say that's ridiculous. I would say they're horribly naive to think that it works anything but that way. And if you go, and by the way, we're in the age of COVID and pandemic. Anytime there's a crisis, what happens is that inequities are accelerated. Mm-hmm. those with means to ensure themselves, protect themselves, cocoon themselves do. And while they're doing it, they see opportunities to make more money. They see opportunities to consolidate wealth and, and, and accelerate wealth. While other people are literally just trying to stay alive, just yeah. trying to make it. And so things get worse and worse. So you said, so the question was, what do we do for policymakers? You have to be about the least among us first, and you have to boldly and bravely be about the least among us first, or you are fully complicit in the acceleration of this inequity. And the reason why I say you have to bravely do it is because every time you take a penny off the table of those whose table is full of pennies, you take a penny, they're going to come at you.
2: Mm -hmm.
1: You're taking my freedoms. You're a communist. You're like, and they're just going to like lose their stuff. Meanwhile, people who have had less, they're just trying to make it. And they might say, by the way, you're doing us wrong again, but they don't have time, disposable Mm -hmm. free time to be agitating in all these sophisticated ways with their Twitter threads and their Facebook and their letter writing and they're calling their buddies or, or talking to them on the golf course. You know, when saying, hey, you know, I wanted to talk to you about this thing you were about to do with the tax code, you know, it's going to hurt me in this way, you know, like there's, there's access that comes with the social networks of the, of the empowered. And there's, you know, all these advantages. Meanwhile, those with less are like, I'm just trying to survive the day. And so if you are going to be a policymaker, you listen to everybody. If you're an elected official, you listen to everybody. But I'll tell you what I do as an elected official. If somebody comes at me from a very empowered space and often a beautiful, passionate space in terms of they just want what's best for their kids, right? Mm -hmm. Agia, that's a canary in the coal mine. Let me turn that question towards our most marginalized community and look at that same issue. And oftentimes the most privileged among us, very nice people, the most privileged among us when they raise an issue, that means it's a hundred times worse on another side of town for another group of people. And so i would then get back to that person and say thank you so much for raising this issue affecting your child as it turns out it's affecting all these kids and it's affecting these kids worse so what i'm going to do is i'm going to attend to the needs of the least among us first and then i'm going to come back around to you and make sure you know you're taken care of as best we can as well and in that in that calculus in that approach One of the things I know in the back of my mind is those who are most privileged, their kids are going to be fine, right? They're going to be just fine. Now they might be angry because I didn't see to their needs the way they wanted to. I saw to other people's needs first, but then I can just remind them, well, you know, you were doing that Christian thing on Sunday. I think this is a logical extension of that, Mm -hmm. or you were doing this liberal thing on Monday in the policy. Well, this is a logical extension of that. All we're talking about is justice.
0: Mm
1: -hmm. So policymakers need to be bold and brave and see to the needs of the least empowered first.
0: So that was Dr. Kevin Foster. And what you heard there was a bit of housing history up until the 1928 master plan, which effectively segregated Austin's Black population into the east side of the city. Next, we're going to continue along this timeline by talking about the history of one neighborhood in particular, Hyde Park. And to help us do that, we're going to listen in on an interview I recorded with Elliot Tredder, Associate Professor of Geography at the University of Calgary in Canada. But he used to work as a lecturer at UT from 2006 to 2012. And while he was there, he wrote a report called Austin Restricted, Progressivism, Zoning, Private Racial Covenants, and the Making of a Segregated City. Okay, let's listen to Elliot Tredar talking about Hyde Park.
2: So, Monroe Scheip was a developer, um, and you know I wrote that report so many years ago. I can't remember all the the detail. Um, at uh, he he's the guy who uh, was basically uh, responsible for the planning and the development. Uh, of of, of Hyde Park, which is a neighborhood uh, in Austin that is just north uh, of the University of Texas uh, at Austin's main campus, the 40 Acres. And it's uh, an area that historically, I think, went from like the mid 30s to the mid 40s in the in the uh, uh, in the avenues. Uh, was it the streets in canada i can't remember which it's the streets in in austin i think so uh yeah so uh and uh there was originally like a, a trolley car that connected uh that neighborhood to downtown austin and uh the neighborhood was like one of the largest and most significant uh in austin and there's quite a lot of material uh, written about it and shipe is in, an interesting person because he had a lot of connections Uh, to other real estate developers uh, in the United States, uh, but also because he was uh, 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 very civically active uh, and uh, was very important in some political uh, campaigns uh, in Austin uh, around uh, government reform and other uh, elements like that. And I sort of start that report, Austin Restricted, uh, talking about him because at that point, I think the whole origin of that report comes from uh, I, I owned a house uh, on 44th, through, between 45th and 44th on Avenue H on the, uh, and about a block from the coffee shop, the flight path. And uh, I had just uh, gone one day to do some research on that house as uh, a sort of starting point to thinking about some of those issues. Now that house is not in um in Hyde Park, it was that actually a house is actually in a neighborhood called the Highland. But um, uh, but out of that, I kind of thought about the development of that area and uh, some of the ways that it developed. And Scheib kind of comes up a lot when you're reading a lot of old city papers, uh, and when you're reading a lot of old city documents, he's a person who appears a lot and was a very influential figure. And I'm sure that you're quite interested in the fact that I note, and that other people had that when Hyde Park developed, it developed as an exclusively white only community. Uh, it was a set of restrictions in the, in the land use at that time that basically designated or said that only quote a white uh, person could live there. Now, the terms of around which we understand who's white and who's not white might have been very different Uh, than they are today. So those are not absolutely uh, transparent terms, but it was obvious at that time that, and I don't actually remember in the deeds uh, of Hyde Park, uh, what what were the specific restrictions or the language, but in all cases, they would have said anyone of African descent, whatever that meant, uh, could not live or reside in, in those neighborhoods. Um, in that neighborhood and I use that as a way I kind of talk about the development uh, of Central Austin and, and West Austin and, and, and some of those ways in which the neighborhood itself um, uh, is, 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 is illustrative of a set of patterns of a set of land development practices uh, concerning uh, racial restriction, but also a whole set of other practices like whether or not you can hang your, your laundry outside, or if you can uh, have a, an animal, or all kinds of restrictions. Um, but Scheip's example is quite interesting because of how it developed, you know, the number of years it developed, and the size that it developed, and, uh, and for the reasons, like I was saying, he's quite active in civic politics.
0: Yeah. And Hyde Park was pretty explicitly advertised. I've seen like old newspaper clippings of advertisements for Hyde Park as being exclusively white. This wasn't just something that was subtle in the deed. This was no, no, this was but- like a big piece and component of the development that was being built there.
2: Right. I mean, but Aldridge Place, I mean, you're right. I mean, the advertisements for Hyde Park are remarkable um in the in in their in, in in many ways in the presentation so Scheib was very good at advertising um but it was not unique uh that exclusivity around the idea of the white race as a as a as an element of neighborhood development uh, was certainly not unique to it uh nor was it the most exclusive neighborhood at least not in terms of the deed i mean i mean the 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 Stacy uh, where Stacy Park is the area around there I can't remember the name of that neighborhood uh, just south of the river uh, certainly is a more enumerative in uh, in the exclusions um, but of course there's the element too that Shipe was actually one of the very first uh, sort of larger community developers in Austin. So the whole neighborhood was developed out by him, whereas in other places in Austin you had smaller sort of pockets of uh, of developer, smaller developments. Uh, whereas the size of Hyde Park at that time was was quite large, and he had to acquire a lot of financing and bank financing uh, to do that development. Uh, but yes, the the advertisements are are quite are quite striking, and I, I mean that, yeah, I mean, they're quite easily found. Uh, yeah. On line, even on the, uh, I believe, even on the Wikipedia page, uh, you can find those, that advertisement.
0: So, with Hyde Park, you see what Elliot describes as private zoning or deed restrictions. As he describes in his report, quote, covenants are not a form of zoning enforced by the police powers of the state, but their effect in regulating the land use patterns of many cities has been substantial. Like zoning, covenants, as an instrument for land use control, formed as a means to ensure that the uses of property, the performances on land, would remain constant in an area. End quote. Later on in that report, Eliot continues on to say quote, Racial covenants were a particular form of deed restriction that became widely used in the United States at some point in the late 19th century. And wherever they appeared, these covenants were used to exclude and subjugate less powerful social groups deemed to be dangerous to property values. End quote. In addition to this so-called private zoning leading to racial discrimination in housing, Elliott also points out the role of the federal government, particularly, particularly when it came to the Housing and Loan Corporation and its decision to redline majority black neighborhoods in Austin. Here's Elliott Treder again to explain it all for us. So we're talking here about we have the, the private zoning of the 1928 master plan, which connects um, pu- you know, pub-
2: public zoning of the Public,
0: I'm sorry, public zoning yeah. of the yeah. 1928 master plan that maybe uh, can't be explicitly enforcing racial apartheid, but does by a lot of other ways, by kind exactly. of taking all of the resources for the black community and putting them in East Austin um, and kind of incentivizing, I guess, growth through in that area. school
2: development, exactly. S- through, exactly, through schools, through hooking up services. So, I mean, you know, like the disappearance of Wheatsville, right, or the disappearance of Clarksville were in some ways motivated by the fact that they just wouldn't pave those streets, they wouldn't spend the money to, they wouldn't, they wouldn't invest in the infrastructure there. And since people don't like having very dusty and dirty houses, they have a, they would wanna move where they could get those kinds of services. So the public zoning is having a role, um, and then
0: you also have the private. And then at the same time, you have the private zoning, like you mentioned, that's also enforcing that. Exactly. Um, exactly. And then also you have the Housing and Loan Corporation seeming like adding another institutional layer. Later in the
2: well. 1930s. That's right. So financiers then, and the nationalization of housing finance is a bit later in the 1930s, come in to then further basically uh, reinforce. What were the racial hierarchy, the patterns of racial segregation and racial hierarchies that had emerged at that time by basically saying, well, look, you don't want to lend areas that are in declining condition. You only want to lend in areas that are in improving condition or better condition, and not exclusively, because there were other ways that they did things that were not, we would consider to be pretty horrible. Like if an area was undergoing significant racial integration they deemed it hazardous for financing because that was just purely out of the idea that certain kinds of people just didn't pay loans. So that was like basically people that were riskier, just kind of riskier classes uh, of people. And that had not, not to do with their capacity to pay loans. And we know that. And that's why we use the term redlining, because in the case of redlining, which is right? The red line was the area that was redded out on the map. In many cases, there wasn't even financial stress test that was done. It was just assumed that they couldn't pay them. And so then you had this idea that if the rate area was mixing, it was going to produce racial animus, and then that was going to be a riskier uh, kind of, of development, right? So you have the different kinds of institutional layers at work in, in, a, in a city like Austin, where you can see a pattern of private Land use restriction, of which somebody like Scheip is a very good exemplar. And then later, all the other communities that follow him. And then you have the public zoning, which comes into force in the 1920s, uh, late 1920s. And then finally, the elements that involved the the creation of sort of the, the more modern institutions of suburban development in the 1940s uh that in, were involved and in, 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 in part of, of of practices that concerned the red line. That's correct. And so you had then the kind of different parts of, of, of that story right and all kind of reinforcing each other uh, and all uh, working uh, to to create a, a system of basically to ensure a system of racial apartheid. That's correct. Yeah.
0: Right. And, yeah. and once you have something like the federal, you know, the housing loan, I can't remember what it's called, the but it's housing. basically, go ahead. Yeah.
2: Well, there's two things, but yes, once you have the federalization of, of, of it, yeah.
0: Yeah. Uh, um, uh, and so basically once you have that, um, also you have this situation, I guess, that incentivizes people, it seems like, to even further make sure they're restricting the zoning yeah. in their housing, because now they're at a place where well, now they basically have to pass those kind of restrictive things in their neighborhood because the, they couldn't get a loan otherwise. Exactly. Like it, it seems like they continue to build on each other.
2: Right. I mean, it, again, it, it's complicated, right? Because the history of housing finance is a pretty crazy, awful history. And it's like a history of theft and stealing. And it's not a pretty history at all. Uh, and so when the federal government tries to rationalize that following or the Great Depression, and they try to come up with these sets of rules, and then later come up with the underwriting guidelines. Um, some of it actually is things that we would appreciate, like stress tests and making sure you're not giving somebody a loan that they can't pay for, and doing things like trying to ensure, uh, you know, your neighborhood has certain kinds of features to it, and and you're not just going to like buy a house and then go to turn on the lights and there's like no electricity there. And, you know, things like that. Like there, there's a set of ways in which the financing of housing uh, does become a, a disciplinary force in, 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 in developers to, 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 to do things that a lot of us would appreciate about our housing. And on the other side of it becomes an enormously important tool uh, for creating relatively uh, sterile, uh, relatively racially homogenous uh suburbs and for ensuring uh the boundaries of uh, uh, of the white race and for ensuring in a way that 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 where those lines are right that 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 is actually a way in which finance and 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 racial animus work together to always be a part of a system that's basically saying you know well if you're getting the finance and you're able to get it you're able to get a home that's nice and if you're not well then sorry and, and, and then that all, I mean, there's a, a story also about how the underwriting guidelines also are also fueled um, through the loan system that was created following the Second World War uh, to, to really push uh, the suburbs, which was that uh, incoming, uh, coming home white GIs were allowed to very, very, very choice terms uh, in, their, in, their, in their home buying purchases uh, those same, uh, same uh, privileges were not afforded to African-Americans. And so then you have a system where, again, the underwriting guidelines feed into that system and you end up with you know white flight, the, the white suburbs, et cetera, of, of, the, of the late 1950s and the 1960s.
0: So that is redlining. Now, the last time period Elliot is going to walk us through is called urban renewal, which is also sometimes called urban removal. Eliot writes about this federal program in a book that he wrote called Shadows of a Sunbelt City, The Environment, Racism, and the Knowledge Economy in Austin. Before we return to my interview with Elliot, I'm going to read you all a passage from that book. Okay, here we go. Let me grab it here. All right. Beginning in the 1950s, after the passage of the Housing Act in 1949, the federal government began to take on a much more active role in urban policy. In particular, the term urban renewal emerged to refer to the federal program that provided funds to to municipalities mainly for slum clearance, made possible by Title I of the 1949 Act. Under its new authority, the federal government could provide funds to a local government or its agent, a development authority for the cost of purchasing existing homes or parcels of land in an area and raising, rebuilding, and or rehabilitating them. The law also authorized federal authorities to provide financial assistance to relocate or rehouse residents in the affected communities. Expanded several times over more than a decade, the program grew in scope and increasingly allowed for federal funds to be used for an ever greater number of programs, particularly commercial developments, while it decreased its involvement in housing projects. Urban renewal reshaped the landscape of cities, in particular their racial geographies. Established because of the demands made from various constituencies to stop the decline of older neighborhoods in cities, particularly near their central business districts, urban renewal efforts involving land clearance and redevelopment disproportionately affected urban neighborhoods with the highest concentration of African Americans. While federal policy was said to be racially neutral, efforts by local governments were so brazenly racialized that in a 1967 interview, James Baldwin, the famed African-American novelist said, "'Urban renewal means moving the Negroes out. It means Negro removal. That is what it means. The federal government is an accomplice to this fact.'" In fact, for more than three decades of the 20th century, one can find many cases where local governments, under the aegis of federal policy, claimed that they were improving their cities by clearing blighted neighborhoods and then building new, often public, housing for the affected communities. In reality, however, African Americans were dispossessed of their property, their communities were torn apart, and in many cases, the residents were just moved from one degraded neighborhood to another. And that's the end of that passage. And so, you really see this play out in many ways throughout Austin, but as Eliot describes in his book, one of the big ways that... You see these policies happen was with the expansion of UT into the Blackland neighborhood which is just east of I-35 and the Brackenridge area in the 1960s ish okay again I'm gonna read a section from Elliot's book to describe that a little more for you grab the page okay these land clearances were devastating for the residents of the affected communities particularly African Americans As a 1984 exposé in the Austin American statesman noted, For many owners, urban renewal engendered bitterness that lives on, bitterness aggravated by city government inaction, lawsuits from angry neighborhood groups, and tragic accounts of families who lost the homes where they and their parents were born. In the two urban renewal areas taken over by UT, approximately 1,000 people were displaced, mostly African Americans and countless businesses, many African-American owned, were first to clo- forced to close. While many people received relocation funds, the money was insufficient for people to buy a new home. The result was that even more African-Americans settled in East Austin because it was the only place where they could afford to live, and these communities became much more isolated and increasingly disadvantaged. Moreover, the urban renewal projects were plagued with problems. Housing projects were delayed, people went without payment, and many people found themselves moving from one area to another, only to find that the new area was being condemned by urban renewal and that they would have to move again. Okay, so now that we've got a little bit of the groundwork laid, let's go ahead and listen to my interview with Elliot.
2: So I became quite fascinated as to, in the, in the 1960s, Uh, And in the 1970s, as uh, Austin undergoes a very substantial redevelopment, an expansion, reorganization, similar to what went on in the 90s, but under different kinds of of institutional uh, guises, um, uh, I was very fascinated with how much those those where that development happened had a lot to do with those institutions that sort of, let's say in the language, some people underdeveloped one part of the city at the expense of another. And the parts of the city that became underdeveloped were the places that were generally occupied by the majority of people that were, that, that were deemed to not be members of the white race. And so um, so that, and there are several reasons for that. One was that those people who were not Um, who who were deemed or or had access to more formal institutions of power, like legal systems or knowledge or whatever, were able to resist uh, certain kinds of urban change. Like they could sue, uh, like some of what you see today, right? You know, this neighborhood is able to like sue and block this development, whereas this other neighborhood can't. Uh, they were able to use the, the sort of certain kinds of uh, of, of political clout or institutional authority. A lot of that, of course, backed up by uh, by race and by class uh, to block, say, the expansion of UT. So then UT sort of like essentially is like, well, it's going to be a lot easier to develop if we go east. It's not explicitly the sort of, but that's kind of it, right? It's like, you know, water flows in... You know, and the easiest path of least resistance, and those people that are able to, you know, mobilize and have a lot of power, and just you just go the other way, and that's kind of what they did. So they were able to basically seize and develop areas that were. Um, uh, with the backing of, of of the austin government uh and and the state of texas they were able to seize a uh, large numbers of, of african uh, homes predominantly occupied by african americans and 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 take those uh those properties and and, and expand uh, ut and what i was kind of interested in was again how those the lingering effects of these things so this is you know, after racial covenants are illegal in 1949. This is after the Civil Rights Bill was passed in 1964. Um, these, are, these are kind of later developments, but yet all of the ways in which the, this, the those over time, because of the ways in which those areas have been underdeveloped. And again, also how that also led to their disenfranchisement in, in decision-making, the institutions of, of power. Um, were made it kind of more susceptible for redevelopment. And it, you can see that very much today, like where the a, a tremendous amount of pressure for redevelopment happens or where it does happen is precisely in communities that have historically been m- might more or less uh, excluded uh, from the city's power structure.
0: And that was my interview with Elliot Tretter. Now, before I wrap things up for today, I want to focus a bit more on the people who were impacted by generations of discriminatory government policy, especially when it comes to housing. I had the chance recently to go to the Austin History Center and look through a bunch of old zines, pamphlets, and flyers made by East Austin community groups in the 1970s, mostly in opposition to these types of so-called urban renewal programs. And they were all super fascinating to read, and I wish I could just spend this entire podcast reading them back to you, but just to give you an idea, here are some of the pieces. One of the zine political comic books that I read was made back in 1979 by the East Town Lake Citizens, and it was titled, What Are You Going to Do When They Run You Out? And on the cover, there's a bunch of drawings of people with little quote bubbles above their heads, and they're asking questions like, Will you be able to pay your rent? Will you be able to pay your taxes? Are the city's plans for East Austin what you want? And then on the next page, there's this comic book style strip with neighbors all talking to each other about the city's latest plans. And here's what they're saying. I took a picture on my phone. I'm going to read it for you a bit. Okay. It says most of us have heard something about downtown, downtown revitalization. But what exactly is this downtown revitalization all about? Revitalization is what they are calling the city's most recent economic plans. From as far back as 1928, the city government has been drawing up economic development plans. The 1928 master plan called the original Chicano barrio a slum and said the area was ideal for making a bigger downtown business district. The 1928 plan also recommended tearing down what they called unsightly Negro shacks along Waller Creek and moving black people to one district. In 1955, Another plan recommended the use of urban renewal programs to get people's houses in East Austin for industrial purposes. For many poor people, mainly Chicanos and Blacks, urban renewal has meant urban removal. In 1974, for example, 30 homes along Bergman Street were torn down so that Fiesta Gardens could be built. And so what you see here is like, this zine is compelling for so many reasons including the fact that from a civic engagement perspective, it's just an awesome example of educating the public about an important issue in a way that feels relevant and interesting, which is kind of my whole thing. So (laughs) I found that part super interesting. But also, you're able to see the ways that community groups did try and push back against these policies and the ways that they knew exactly what was coming. Take this quote from one of the zines. It says, quote, Building expensive condominiums and townhouses in the rainy street area will make land values go up fast. This will cause a big jump in property taxes, which many homeowners will not be able to pay. It will also cause higher rents, which will drive many low-income people out of their homes, end quote. And so, you know, here we are some 40 years later, and this is pretty much exactly what happened. And reading through the scene, I feel like the thoughts being shared in it are the same ones being talked about by Austinites of today. So how can we break out of this cycle? How can we begin to correct the mistakes of the past? And uh, Well, that is exactly the topic for an upcoming episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour, because this is our show for today. But I hope you'll continue to join us, because we're going to be continuing with our series on housing affordability in Austin. Can the Austin Common Radio Hour is brought to you in partnership by the Austin Common and Co-op Radio the austin common is a local news source that helps austinites be informed and make a difference in their community you can learn more about the austin common by visiting com or following us on instagram at the underscore austin underscore common co-op is a cooperatively run community radio station based in austin texas to listen to more of co-op's amazing lineup of shows visit koop.org or tune in to 917fm This show is hosted by me, Amy Sansbury, and produced by John Hoffner. You can find podcasts of the Austin Common Radio Hour on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google Podcasts. One quick, friendly request on this, if you like our show and you find it useful, please consider rating, reviewing, and subscribing on your favorite podcast app. It really helps us to be seen and heard by more folks in Austin, so thank you in advance if you're able to do that for us. And that's our show for today. Thanks!